Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. How are you feeling this week? I'm, I'm really tired. You're tired? Yeah. Why you? is that? I'm sick and tired of this, Matt. <laughs> you're, sick, you're sick and tired? Uh, is that is that uh, emotional fatigue? or, uh, or what Emotional kind of fatigue? labor. Can you not ask me to do the emotional labor of explaining that to you, right. Matt? That's really bad allyship. No, I'm just you, physically tired. You want me to tired. Venmo you instead? Or? Yeah, can you Venmo me for that question? Yeah. <laughs> And you pay, that's like reparations for even asking me that. No, I'm just tired. I need to sleep more. I stay up late. I uh, was staying up late watching some returns. Although sadly, they were pretty definitive pretty early. Uh, uh-huh. Happily, in some cases, like uh, Ed Markey, who we can claim some credit for getting elected because of our focus on him. Um, with um, Alex Morse, who lost, uh, we can claim some credit for helping rehabilitate him, but we couldn't overcome the massive outspending and, of course, the smear campaign that we helped. We did help debunk. Uh, in fact, I saw someone on Twitter say like he he was able to clear his name on on Useful Idiots with Matt Taibbi and Katie Halper. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but yeah, there was I mean, I actually. So, yeah, Alex Morris, the Congress, the, the, the mayor running for Congress against Richie Neal, one of the most powerful Dems um, lost. And actually, we'll get into that for my Democrats suck. So I won't give too much of that away. But yeah, okay. we have a great show for you today. Right, right. And we'll talk about what that show is. Yeah, we don't need uh, to preview yeah, it. We don't, we, don't, we don't need to preview it because that's not what this is about. We want you yeah. to guess. Yeah, we want yeah. you to guess. <laughs> yeah, so is... if you're watching right now, have Put... tweet, tweet um, hashtag useful idiots pod, tag KT helps, this letter K, letter T, H-E-L-P-S, and tag M Taibbi. And tell right. us who you think the guest is, and then yeah, yeah. close close your eyes, focus, and then just yeah. imagine what you yeah, exactly. visualize the, visualize the show. It, yeah. Um, all right, what do we have for uh, the four food groups this week? Uh, Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? What it's Europe, right? I'm Democrats up, yeah. Suck? With Democrats suck, so there's always so much to choose from. But I, I would like to go back to the Morse story, and um, of course, as people know, um, he is the mayor of Holyoke. As people know who watch the show. People probably don't know who the mayor of Holyoke is otherwise. Um, or that or Holyoke, Holyoke is a city. Is. Yeah. 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 It's in it's in Massachusetts. So there is a uh, as we as we uh, exposed, he was basically set up by um, a combination of really nerdy college Dems who uh, one or two of whom wanted to get jobs with uh, Richie Neal, who is the congressman he was hoping to unseat. Um, and also the Massachusetts Dems, who actually uh, we know through investigative reporting from The Intercept, um, we actually know that they were encouraging these students they were in contact with to destroy all their communication. But I will say that on the Katie Helper show this week, uh, you can check out an interview I did with Owen Higgins from The Intercept, where he talks about how biased the media was against Alex Morse. And what you had was basically the media like after he was exonerated and vindicated, you did have the New York Times saying he was vindicated in their headline. But all the local press were like, oh, he's sticking to his story. Like he's staying in despite, you know, like they, they were just very biased headlines um, and very biased coverage. And you you wouldn't even like you'd have to read paragraphs in to, to, to discover that he had never been accused of and never had slept with any of his own students. Yeah, he uh, he lost. But uh, let's I think he's going to run again. Um, why not? But I wanted to show a really disgusting ad that had been uh, released by some uh, PAC that's uh, called um, 
Americans, American Working Families Pack. Uh, if we go to the tweet, uh, this is another reporter who worked on the Moore story, did great work, Daniel Marins. Um, if we go to the tweet, here's a an ad that they somehow sent to stations, and then they claimed that uh, they never meant to do that, and it was <laughs> released accidentally. Um, so here's the ad. They're funding Alex Morse, who promotes their agenda, not ours. As mayor, Alex Morse drove public schools into a state takeover, allowed police brutality to go unchecked, and unemployment to explode. Now, Alex Morse admits to sexual relationships with college students, even while he was a university lecturer. Alex Morse, terrible judgment and a terrible record. American Working Families is responsible for the content of this advertising. So, yeah, a lot to unpack there, but um, kind of ridiculous also claims like they had a graphic of, of like unemployment in, in the state versus in Holyoke as if he's like single handedly responsible for that. Mm -hmm. um, and as if Holyoke was this like thriving place before that happened. I just want to clarify one thing that American Working Families, which is like a labor business pack, um, clearly aligned with the Democrats. Um, <laughs> After that ad went out that we just saw, they said, today an ad from our organization began airing that we never intended to air. It was mm -hmm. accidentally sent to stations instead of a corrected version. We regret the error and have asked all stations to immediately stop airing the ad. That's gotta be a first, like a, the first like butt dialed oppo ad. Yeah, That's kind of exactly, yeah. Oh, sorry, we had a whole ad cut that included something and then we totally meant to send you this other ad. <laughs> that that must really suck. I bet that person's really in trouble. That person better get fired. But um, yeah, I mean, Richie Neal, he sucks. Um, and I'm just really angry that, um, you know, people fell for this stuff. And the Dems, the Dems well, just we suck don't, because, yeah. We don't, we know, don't know, that, know why. We don't know that they fell for this. I mean, Well, I, his negatives went up after that. And they did release, the story was released as right as mail-in voting started. And he wasn't within 10 points striking distance. Right. But sure, we don't know. But okay, how about we just say the Dems suck because Richie Neal sucks. Okay. Matt, do uh, you off the top of your head know why Richie Neal is so bad? I mean, he's the number one uh, recipient of uh, corporate donations, I think, in there Congress. Right? There you go. Uh, but that's, just to be fair, that's not unusual for the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. But, um, right. but uh, you know, I think... From what I understand, the, the the complaint about him is that, you know, for all that muscle, he didn't really do a whole lot for his district. So right. Um, but you know, this the I think there there is an upside to the Morse story, though. For me, I mean, he didn't win, but um, I think it would have been a much worse precedent if he had dropped out. That's true. It would have been better, obviously, if he had won this this race but the fact that you can um sort of defy this kind of tactic and stay in and still be viable at all right um, you know true. i think i think that's something yeah and they We're, stood by him like right. well some people paused their endorsements but then they got back in um, right. it is something and i gotta say it does say something that they had to i mean this guy is like 31 he was the mayor of holyoke um Went, which he started to be at the age of 22, which is kind of hilarious. But um, he's 31. He took on the most powerful, one of the most powerful members in Congress, right? Like, definitionally, you're that, I guess, if you're the chairman of the House of yeah. Ways, and, mm -hmm. Ways and Means. 
And, you know, he came close and then they then there had to be, although you'll say, man, I'm sure that we don't know if that's what did it, but there was people felt the need to create this scandal. So it's kind of inspiring in a way. It's depressing that they had to do that fake scandal. It's kind of inspiring that they took him seriously enough as a threat or he was enough of a threat. Yes, absolutely. Um, look, it's it's very, very unusual for a powerful committee chair to face any kind of um, uh, a primary challenge, uh, you know, from within their their own party. Well, of course, yeah. any any primary challenges. So it's um, you know you have to take it as as a uh, a serious indictment of Neil that that the race was even this close. But you right. know, again, again, I think um, you know it's it's good that he didn't drop out. Yes. Uh, but uh, you know, I want you, it was a pretty close call too, and it does seem like some of those the the argument um, in favor of uh, sort of rehabilitating him for a lot of uh, the people who were thinking about dropping him um, was they were more persuaded by the argument that that Neil's attack was homophobic than they were that it was. Uh, just simply not true, you know? Right. Uh, so you want, you want, I still do wonder if this kind of attack could work in some other kind of uh, Oh, like against a straight person? Yeah, against a straight person. Right. But, well, we're going to find that out and uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Right. But, but it, it is, it is encouraging that he, that he stuck it out and yes. it, was, it was looking bad, you know, in those first few days, it was looking like kind of a typical Twitter denouement where it was just, so much energy online was gathering and people were running for the hills. But, uh, you know, in reality, if you like people will, they, they still are somewhat open to like examining what actually happened. Yes. And also he told me, cause I interviewed him, people can see a, a follow-up interview I did with him on the Katie Halber show. And sorry, I don't usually do that, but two and two references in one episode. It's okay. Um, he was um, he said that he got really great responses from useful idiots, like from the, his appearance and people gave him like handwritten cards and stuff, because I do think it's really important what he did and his staying in really was. And he talk, talked to us about how he considered dropping out um, right. because who the hell wants their personal lives combed over again and again. And something else that I thought was interesting was how he you kind of forget the personal impact of this and you see it more as political. But he said how it was like really hurtful to see that someone he had been nice to nothing but cordial to and and this was a student who set him up uh would say stuff like that and kind of revel in 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 setting him up because we saw through these texts that he was like this will sink his campaign don't mind me totally leading him on you know like it's just that's really cruel so you're on notice richie neal and you're on notice mass dems and you're on notice um those students all of you who conspired against him okay and then i have another democrat suck um, which is that, um, and Matt, trigger warning for you, because I just feel like you're going to be kind of triggered by this. But um, guess who's launching a podcast? Mayor Pete. Exactly. How'd you know? Um, guess what it's called? I feel like it's such a Buttigieg title, you may almost be able to get it. That's a little specific, know. but it's so corny. Just get, the, what do you the, think? The was, integrity report. I have no idea. Yeah, that's actually a good guess. Yeah. It's called The Deciding Decade with Pete Buttigieg. And uh, it's going to feature thinkers, athletes, artists, authors, policymakers, people whose ideas will shape the times we're about to live through. So can we just play? We have a little uh, preview of it from iHeartRadio. 
Great music. Hi, Pete Buttigieg here. Maybe you know me as Mayor Pete. During my run for president, I traveled the country from some of our biggest cities to places that sometimes feel forgotten. I saw leadership, grit, innovation, and kindness in every corner of America. And I became more convinced than ever that we are not just at a crucial moment in our politics, we could actually be at the dawn of a new era in this country. We can take this time and use it in a way to bring people together. We are fighting back and we demand that our government act. We know that this, the first year of the 2020s, has been one of chaos and anguish. But I believe now is the beginning of America's deciding decade, a time that will present leaders and all Americans with decisions that will shape life in this country for the rest of this century. Behind these big changes are people. I love the twangy music. I know. Uh, what is that? Yeah. So our our, our producer for this segment, uh, Reed Dunley. Reed, what, what's your guess as to who who that musician is? Reed's a musician. So one of those guys, like Mumford and Sons. That's exactly who I was going to say. Mumford and Sons. Nice. That's really funny. Yeah, I like it. It's got that kind of twangy. Yeah, it's like country. new age alternative yeah. bluegrass meets right. pop. That right. you can listen to anything on Spotify. And right. it'll, it'll work from, you know, mom to dad to teenager and everything. Right. It's like if you something good to listen to, like if you've eaten a quaalude in an airport or something like that. Right. That works on that too. Yeah. yeah. Moms, dads, and quaalude consumers in airports. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and not, not to be uh, obvious about it, but. Uh, isn't everything always the dawn of a new era? Like we're yeah. pretty much always at the dawn of a new era, aren't we? I mean, that's a pretty like optimistic take on where we are right now. Like <laughs> well, I guess the a, dawning of a, a new era is new the era. apocalypse, right? Is the apocalypse. Right. Yeah, I mean, it could be it could be the the, the dawning of 100 years of hell, right? Is for all we right. know, right? But how but do it's... you think Mayor Pete would spin that? Cuz he's so corny. He'd be what how do you think he would describe the apocalypse? Um, like I don't know. Uh, an opportunity. Look, if we just get for, together, yeah. we you know we we can all make this work. You know, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. apocalypse. Uh, an opportunity for us to show our greatest face as Americans to show that grit for the, which we're known. The, the better of our three faces, or whatever yeah. it is, right? Yeah, yeah. Our yeah better angels. Yeah, yeah. I I can't believe I at one point thought he was going to win, but um, that. Uh, it's pretty bad. So if we if we lose to him, then that that should be our signal that we should be doing yeah, something else to, yeah. uh, you know, maybe get into another line of work. So for Republicans suck this week. I, I, it's not original, but I think we just got to talk about Trump's Laura Ingram interview, uh, which was um, kind of unique, I think, in in the annals of even like Fox broadcasting because. There were like there were numerous instances of Trump saying stuff that was so crazy that she was trying to save him politically in the middle of the broadcast, uh, which I'm not sure I've ever seen before. Which, but it was it was pretty it was pretty interesting. Actually, Reed, can we start with number two, the golf clip, uh, which I, I have to thank you for pointing out to me. This this is a this was really something. It's more dangerous to be a police officer today, do you not think, than it has been in the police a long time? are under siege because of things. It, they can do 10,000 great acts, which is what they do, and one bad apple or a choker. You know, a choker. They choke. Uh, shooting the they, guy, they, they, they shooting the guy in the back many times. I mean, 
Couldn't you have done something different? Couldn't you have wrestled? You know, I mean, in the meantime, he might have been going for a weapon. And, you know, there's a whole big thing there. But they choke. Just like in a golf tournament, they miss a three-foot You're putt. not comparing it to golf because, of course, that's no, what the media I'm saying. saying people choke. <laughs> people people, people choke. So That's so beautiful. Yeah. For first, so many first, reasons. Well, you go. It's yours. So. Yeah. First of all, the choking thing is there. You don't want to go there. I think that was no is not the word that he probably wanted to use in that, that situation. Uh, uh, yes. And then and then to go with the golf thing. The, 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 the uh, ironic thing is, I think there is actually a sane way to say what he was trying to say, which is uh, even in a, in a near perfect system, there will statistically still be some incidents that go wrong. It's just that there's there's no way around it. I, I mean, I think one of the things that's been frustrating about uh, this whole phenomenon is that we're there's been like a relatively small amount of discussion about what policing policies we want to change, and more of just a general like the police suck. Uh, and so, what I think the the point Trump is trying to make is that there will uh, there will always be some incidents, right. right? But instead, he he compares it to something that's completely uh, ridiculous. Uh, and you know, I don't know. It, it's it's the and then she, of course, jumps in trying to save him by point. You know, saying you really don't want to compare this to golf in the current environment. And he just steamrolls right over her, which was which was crazy. Wax uh, are like a golf ball. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then then the, the thing that everybody's talking about is this clip, which uh, Reed, if we could hear, is the thugs. I don't even like to mention Biden because he's not controlling anything. Who, who do you they think is pulling him. Biden's strings? Uh, is it former Obama People officials? that you've never heard of. People that are in the dark shadows. People that oh, What are, does that mean? That sounds like conspiracy theory. Dark shadows. No, what is that? people that you haven't heard of. They're, they're people that are on the streets. They're people that are controlling the streets. We had somebody get on a plane from a certain city this weekend. And in the plane, it was almost completely loaded with, with thugs wearing these dark uniforms, black uniforms with gear and this and that. They're, they're on a plane. Where's the where's this? I'll tell you sometime, but I, I, it's under investigation right now. But they came from a certain city, and this person was coming to the Republican National Convention. And there were like seven people on the plane like this person, and then a lot of people were on the mm -hmm. plane to do big damage. They were coming Planning for, for Washington. Yeah, this was all, so, this is all, right, all happening. So, but and, the, my curiosity so peaked. Well, yeah. Do we find out more about this person? No, we don't. No, no. He, he just goes into this whole theory that there's there's a plane full of. I mean, I, I think thugs on a plane. The yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, plane, that's yeah. that's what. So my my whole theory about this is that so he was talking to somebody who watched Con Air on the flight, all right? And they or, or basically, and, and the fact that, that that this is now under investigation. Basically, Trump is telling us sort of that somebody told him a story about being on a plane and there were people and wearing black, right? Uh, and now that is under federal investigation because Trump heard that story. That's the way I'm interpreting what, what I heard, uh, which is it, completely yeah. crazy. And, and the even crazier thing is the, is the uh, shadow people thing. Which I know. It does yeah. sound like QAnon. Like I, you know, for someone who thinks a lot of, a lot of the anti-Trump media is, um, hyperbolic or? it's hyperbolic 
there are there are moments where you you watch him and you think like he's just genuinely crazy you know yeah. and uh you know so i don't know where he's getting the the, the sh people in the shadows thing from well, it reminds me of um so the part about the planes it's almost like you know and useful i mean in um the usual suspects where uh at the end spoiler alert we see that he's made up this whole story just based right. on visuals he's, in the yeah, room, yeah, right? Yeah, right. He's got the Kobayashi under the clip, under the cup yeah, and everything. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, you know, there's a, I don't remember, whatever. There's like a photograph of a whale and he says he went whaling. It's not yeah. true, but I'm just trying uh, to think for people who haven't seen the movie, but it reminds, it makes me think of that. Cause I imagine him being like, take a line from snakes on the plane, take a line from Con Air, then men in black, like all these movie ideas that he's mashing together into a story. Right. Um, or, but maybe I don't even feel like he's lying. I think maybe because he's seen those movies, he thinks that happened. The shadows thing, it's so amazing because this is kind of typical Trump in some ways. He says something and it's like almost true. Like Biden is not going to be, I don't think, within at least for very long, making a lot of decisions. Right. And I don't think the people are going to be in the shadows, right? Like everyone I know is like, it's going to be his, you know, the cabinet that's making decisions because he's uh, there's some kind of donors like metaphorically. Oh, right. Of through. course. Right. But I do think in this in this example, it's more than usual going to be. I think it'll be more hands off, but honestly, probably not more hands off than, than Obama. But that's just Obama wasn't really an administrator. Um, right. Right. And, you know, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this just but but the way he tells the story, it sounds like he's talking about the Bilderbergs or the trilateral yeah. commission or something like that, yeah. you know, like uh, and so uh, it's just Tr Trump is amazing because he's uh, he, he can't seem to to um, convert political situations to to his advantage. He every time it seems like things are kind of breaking his way a little bit. And that we saw in the last week or so that the battleground races started to tighten for a variety of reasons. Um, he just says something so crazy that he goes that that he completely repels. Uh, his own momentum. I don't know. It's he, it, the we're gonna. This is gonna be an interesting stretch run. But I, I, I think that you know, with everything being such a mess right now, um, his chaotic personality is the one thing that that like basically outdoes any inherent advantages he has as an incumbent. Like people are striving for safety and security, and they just don't see him as as, as being that. They see him as being uh chaotic and unhinged and this is uh this is an example yeah i do wonder what the effect is on like swing voters versus his base versus undecided yeah well then there's a the whole question of what the messaging on the other side does for swing voters because you the polls all show that trump is winning with independence that there's basically no such thing as a a republican who's going to vote for Biden, like the those numbers are really not right. great. They're all in the uh, Lincoln in the Lincoln project. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and spoke at the DNC. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We'll see. I mean, just Trump, Trump's an amazing figure. So I knew we're going to look back at this and or maybe we won't. Maybe 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 the next hundred years worth of politicians will all be uh, crazier even than he is. So we'll, we'll we'll see where this goes. But uh, all right. What do we have for isn't that terrible? So Ohio woman calls cops to probe penis-shaped meat from store. Wiener and beans, anyone? This is from the New York Post, so of course it's going to be a good read. Um, uh, let's see. 
An Ohio woman bought a package of what she thought was smoked turkey tails at a supermarket, but thought she got the shaft when she noticed <laughs> a decidedly phallic-shaped piece of meat in her beans, the Akron Beacon Journal reported. I'm calling save a lot. This ain't right, Akron resident Lamia Singfeld said on a Facebook on Facebook Live. I know what this is, she added, referring to a male member. It's got the folds. Upon further investigation, there's a hole at the tip. Just the tip. When she checked her store receipt, it indicated she had bought turkey tails, but a photo of the label said it was actually smoked pork tails. But still, feeling she was cooking male genitalia, the worried oh, woman called, okay, called the cops right. about the mystery meat. I called the police because I examined it, and it is what it is. Uh, the police came and they examined it, and it is, in fact, a penis. They are calling the medical examiner out here right now and the coroner because somebody is missing their stuff. Save a lot has got some explaining to do, she said. Fortunately, but it's not. Yeah. Well, fortunately, an investigator from the Summit County Medical Examiner's Office said the meat was indeed pork and not an errant penis. What does adding, errant mean? Missing? You mean like lost? Okay, yeah, I guess right. so, yeah. yeah. Adding that the piece of meat contained a bone, suggesting it was likely a pigtail. In a statement to Beacon, the Beacon Journal, Save a Lot said it had not been contacted by the customer. At Save a Lot, we have a long-held commitment to the highest standards and quality control, and work in partnership with our vendors to ensure those standards are upheld and do not include any, I guess, human penis um, mistakes, purchases. Issues of quality receive the utmost priority, and we take this matter very seriously. We can confirm that we have no previous quality issues with this item, and we have not been contacted by the customer in question or the local authorities regarding this incident. We will take the appropriate action at that time. A still Wait, what, is, what is no previous quality issues with this item? Like we've never had somebody accuse us of selling a human penis before? I mean, I would like, yes, or they could mean with the horsetail or pig or pork tail. Oh my God, that's so sad. It's a pigtail. It's so gross, terrible. A still suspicious Springfield, Singfield said she was, she has hired an attorney to look into the matter. Regardless of what it was, she said the meat was mislabeled and wasn't a turkey tail. It looks nothing like the other meat in the package, she said. And to be fair, end quote, and to be fair, apparently it was a pig, a pork tail. That is a really unattractive piece of meat. But to, but also, she could have splayed it that. She could have made it look that way. Also, she could have cleaned the plate. It's just there's a lot of things about that story that are kind of disturbing. Right. Uh, and in fact, the messy plate suggests that maybe she was moving it around. Right. Or gnawing on it a little bit. To make know. it look more phallic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, the biggest is, is that is that Facebook video available? I'm kind of sad. I think it's no longer available, which is too bad because that would have been a good way to to learn about it but yeah drive just... ratings for us is that, yeah oh yeah that too but it's just a funny way to watch it um yeah you know what's funny is that our that we've been doing this show now for so long that we're starting to drift into patterns like that, that basically are well we'll see what happens when with my next segment but but i try uh, to find penis stories as much as possible because it makes matt laugh so hard right yeah exactly that that is Oh my god, it's of... the funniest thing. I mean, I laugh harder at Matt laughing at them. <laughs> I don't remember the first time we did a penis story, but watching you laugh so hard was like so amusing. Cause you basically like a little like a preteen or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah, that's it's so look, funny. I didn't never really grew up. So the the, the funny thing about this is she 
I mean, the, the calling the police is interesting. I didn't, I didn't actually see where the, the news story was going until the middle, that she actually thought it was a human penis. But right. the, the, the ironic punchline that it turned out to be some other kind of meat that she was sort of vindicated in the end. Right. I know. I mean, she probably could. I wonder if she can sue, because in theory, what if you're allergic to pork? Right. Yeah. All, there's all kinds of things going on. And I wonder how, how often has that happened to the rest of us? It was a horse tail that she thought she was cooking? Turkey tail, I think. Oh, turkey tail. Why did I think horse tail? Anyway, that is uh, that is terrible. Yeah. It's a terrible picture. It's an image I won't, I won't get out of my head anytime soon. Uh, well, just to keep things nice and tasteful uh, and to continue the uh, longstanding uh -huh, pattern. Uh -huh. uh, longstanding. <laughs> um, yeah, why, why not just continue the self-referential nature of the show? Uh, we've, we've just done way too many necrophilia oh, yes. uh, stories lately. And so let's just go on ahead and make this the worst podcast segment of all time. And people really appreciate it, by the way. Do they? So we, 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 we should rename this the, the, the necrophilia report. Yeah, we should. And really, I just want to read the story, the beginning of the story and, and get Katie's moral take on this. Oh. Is this different for you at all? I love that this is this story by necrophilia is found under uh, on a website called Talent Recap. Talent recap. Yeah, exactly. Uh, things got very disturbing outside of the Daybreak Day Resource Center in Macon, Georgia. Kenny uh, O'Brien Whitehead, 55, was caught having sex with a woman on the front steps. But what authorities discovered uh, next sent shockwaves through the town. Now, if we could scroll down again. There we go. The Bibb County Sheriff's Office responded to two calls to calls of two people engaging in sexual acts outside of the homeless shelter. Once they arrived at the scene, they instructed Whitehead to put his clothes back on after stripping nude during sex. It wasn't until Whitehead stepped away from the woman that they realized she was unresponsive. Uh, I mean, I could go on, but that's basically- Well, no, uh, we need to say, I would like, to, I'm going to go on because this is extremely relevant to my assessment of this. Okay. The corpse had already been dead for some time before authorities got there. He was then arrested and charged with necrophilia, sexual intercourse, or attraction towards corpses. In the state of Georgia, a person convicted of necrophilia will be punished by a prison term between one and 10 years. It was originally just a felony conviction and Whitehead was being held without bond. Hmm. Uh, he remained in custody Monday on the necrophilia charge, but after further investigation, the Bibb County Sheriff's Office investigators have now ruled this case a homicide. Hmm. Whitehead is now facing additional charges of murder and rape added to his necrophilia charge. Well, that just throws everything out of whack for you, right? Because this exact is actually something that I really think is an important um, part of uh, necrophilia judgment. Because if this was murder, then of course it's bad. In fact, right. you don't get any of the upside of necrophilia. If if he <laughs> there's no necrophilia home advantage. Home team advantage. I don't think we can do this segment. This is somebody's, Why? somebody's daughter that, you know, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I brought it up. I know. I, I mean, look, why? Well, you see, you're actually proving my point, because if it were a clear case of necrophilia, you'd be OK with it. But because it involves a crime. you OK, look, <laughs> I don't mean to turn you into a necrophilia positive person. When I say necrophilia Wait. positive, you're not that. 
No, no, I thought that this is a role reversal. I'm, and I'm not that, you know, I'm a necrophilia is, necrophilia colon, not as bad as people say. But I want to make it clear that I have no skin in the game, so to speak. I am not, there's nothing, this is a purely philosophical thing. I mean, I think people know this, but I want to make sure that people know when I'm making this joke that I'm not being like self-deprecating on that level. Like this is not, has nothing to do with my orientation. I have, I find the idea of it repulsive. I just think that if it's as this all started because Matt told me about a case of a police officer with his webcam, with his uh, body cam on, uh, molesting a dead woman who was dead at the scene. No pulse. I hope. Now, I don't, how can they say she'd been dead for some time and it was, it was homicide? I don't know. I'm sure they've, they've, there's probably something that gives them some indication that he had done it, perhaps a confession. Right. We don't know. Yeah. We'll, right. we'll, well, that is not, then that trumps the necrophilia thing. That right. again, the whole point of necrophilia is that there's no harm done to the quote unquote victim. And the only victims of necrophilia are the surviving family and loved ones. It's true. Or if you think that they're, again, I think this is like, I think I made such an important contribution or inter, this is my important intervention into philosophy with this I've never heard before, which is that if you're religious, necrophilia is really bad. And if you're an atheist, it's not so bad. But only if the person has no living relatives or friends. <laughs> Because they, yes, that's unfair to them because it's up to them probably. They probably don't want them ha that happening to their loved one. And they have the right to not want that. Uh, you know, it's interesting. The, the, when I, my idea was just to find, you know, look to see if there were necrophilia stories and to see if you would actually talk about this again. Of course. Uh, but, when, but when I did, I found that there were like lots and lots of wow. them all over the world. Wow. So this was actually that's the one great. that I read was actually the least disturbing Oh man, well, yeah, well, I'll read that one for next them. week. Yeah. But Matt, I got to say something. The fact that you chose this for isn't that weird and not isn't that terrible shows me that you are really, that my, my necrophilia standing is having an effect. I'm destigmatizing it. If not as not weird, then not terrible. <laughs> or I just stopped making a distinction between weird and terrible. Like six or you ago. had weird for this week and I had terrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In fact, we should swap, but we should swap. That should be the weird, the penis uh, cooking, the would be right. penis cooking and the, yeah, we, but it's okay. We, we pledge to our audience that there will, be no, right. there will be no penises or dead victims next we week. We do? We do? Well... Okay. You can make that pledge. I'll make I that won't. Pledge. I, I, I pledge. I pledge to be necrophilia free next, next week. All right. So we've got, we've, we've squared away all the instances of supermarket penises and uh, necrophilia in, at least in the United States. Right. Oh, um, wow. I'm so curious about the other ones. All right. So our next guest is uh, somebody we've had on the show uh, several times, uh, Shahid Buttar. And uh, we have him on because we want to talk to him obviously but also because he's involved there's been a news story about his campaign uh for those of you who don't know he's running uh for congress against uh, house speaker nancy pelosi and uh, a story broke earlier this year and i'm just going to read the top of um the piece which came out in the intercept uh which goes like this 
Uh, the campaign of Shahid Buttar, a Democratic Socialist challenger to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, is stumbling amid allegations of sexism and mistreatment of staff in the workplace. The allegations, which former staffers described to The Intercept, prompted the San Francisco chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America to consider a draft resolution rescinding the organization's endorsement of the candidate. Uh, and I think at this point, Katie, it's they have rescinded it. Yes, they've rescinded it, right? yeah. Okay, so this, this story is extremely complicated. It comes down to basically a couple of things, though. There is a there's sort of a Me Too uh, accusation uh, about sexual impropriety, uh, and that's we'll get into the factual basis of that. But then in addition to that, there's a couple of other things going on that ultimately come down to a question of whether or not certain behaviors in the workplace constitute abuse. Right. And uh, I think, Katie, you and I may differ on this a little bit, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really interesting story about, um, about what, uh, what constitutes impropriety, what constitutes a news story, what things sh- we, we should be talking about, and what things are just things that go on in the workplace. Right. And we're going to we're going to get into all that with him. Just so people know, I did reach out to some of the people who um, allege workplace um, toxicity um, and uh, nobody told no one wanted to go on the record. There are obviously going to be some things in this interview that he's going to say that his quote unquote accusers would would probably take issue with. We just can't get to all of it. Our purpose here is to hear his side of the story. uh, And that's what we're going to do right now. You know, we've talked to you about your campaign, um, and right now there's a story that's about your campaign, but also a story about your campaign in a different way. Uh, do you want to set it up for viewers and listeners, just what the status is right now in terms of um, allegations um, that have roiled the campaign, as The Intercept said, I believe, in its headline? Sure. Uh, there were a pair of accusations that emerged uh, when my former staff uh, brought to the press the accusations of someone in DC who claimed that I harassed her many years ago. And then my staff had claimed that on our campaign team that they had experienced uh, gendered treatment. And the result of those claims were a series of news articles by local press and then international press, a number of local political organizations raced to rescind their endorsements of our campaign. And I'm very eager for the facts finally to start coming to light. Uh, Before we get into that too much, is there, this is, do you have any indication that there's um, the Pelosi campaign played any role in anything here or is this an organically developing story? I wouldn't say that they had a direct hand, certainly. They're a beneficiary of the accusations. And I, I would say that maybe it's an indirect effect insofar as you know, the folks who I hired to work on my campaign came from the city's progressive establishment. And the progressive establishment in San Francisco generally remains beholden to Pelosi. She's the head of the party. And so even if people here locally favor Medicare for all or climate justice or defunding the police, the progressive establishment in San Francisco hasn't seen fit to stand by those commitments in our race. And so I do think that the tacit pressure 
on people seeking political careers to ally themselves with that establishment may have played a role here. Uh, that is very different, however, than Pelosi and the Democratic establishment engineering this. I think, if anything, it was, to use your word, organic, driven by people who had their own interests. No, this seems very, I mean, it is very different from the Morse case where, which we just, uh, we did a show about this a few episodes ago. We also talked about it earlier, but where that was clearly like people opposed to the campaign on a political level. What do you say to the claims? The There seems to be the sexual harassment by the accuser in Washington, D.C. What about the workplace um, uh what's being called toxicity and misogyny. Well, is this first as to the claims made by Liz Croydon in Washington? They're not true. And I've relied on others to expose the facts. You know, my first commitment when these accusations came forward was to be an ally to survivors. And that means I'm not going to punch down. I'm not going to impugn the credibility of anyone accusing me. Uh, I accurately stated that the allegations towards me were false and I waited for the facts to come out and it took some time. Uh, it took frankly weeks um, for the facts in either of those allegations to come out. And you're right that the facts with respect to my accuser in Washington did finally emerge and the history, uh, her history of allegations towards me is one I knew at the time certainly and resolved not to share, you know, right. in order to be an ally to survivors. Her history with other people is not one that I knew at all. I mean, I, I'd heard a couple of those stories, but the, the journalists who documented <clears throat> the other examples uh, involving uh, Liz's history, a lot of those alarmed me. Uh, you know, one of the stories in particular was, was especially revealing to me because it was someone in Los Angeles who reportedly experienced from Liz precisely what she claimed I did to her. And I didn't do those things. And it made a lot of sense when I saw someone else explain their experience. And I'm glad to know that people, you know, seemingly have enough of a commitment to the truth that faced with those facts, many people who immediately rushed to judgment about me have reevaluated those first commitments, uh, those first judgments, let's say. With respect to the workplace issues, the facts really still have barely come to light. And it took almost a month for anyone to publish the text messages that we received. And, and I'll just say, I've never meant to treat anyone on my team differently according to any characteristic, whether it was gender, age, or race. We did have a lot of very challenging conversations with my staff during the primary, frankly, because we had a lot of very strategic differences. When you described before there, uh, this being different than Alex Morris's case uh, in terms of there not being political differences, there absolutely were political differences here, just to be clear. And that absolutely does pervade and explain, I think, uh, you know, much of what's been reported. At the end of the day, though, I'll just apologize, and I have apologized before, and I'll do it again, for any experience that people had on my team that they might have interpreted in that way. One of the challenges for me is I in responding to these accusations, is that when my former staff left the campaign, nobody suggested at the time, including them, that they'd had any gendered experience. And they spoke with other people. They spoke with the people who work on my team now, later. And the same thing repeated itself. You know, they talked about the strategic differences. They frankly didn't think I could win. It's part of the reason why they left the team, and I was happy to see it happen. 
Uh, and then the claims about the toxic workplace emerged only after they found Liz. And they've even publicly said as much that they didn't think about their experience with me in gender terms until they found someone whose claims have been revealed as dubious, which does leave me wondering how exactly this all happened. But I'm, I'm glad finally for the chance to, to address the facts and for the record to reveal the facts. You said that they publicly said, right, that they didn't realize the gendered nature of it. Um, Though they tweeted, one of them had tweeted that they'd never discussed their experience on my campaign in gendered terms until after they found this. Okay, so just to back up, what were the what were those political differences that you're talking about, or strategic differences? Strategic differences is how I describe it. I mean, I think the the folks who worked with me did want to see uh, Pelosi removed from office. One of them spoke publicly after I won the primary about how she had wanted to run herself for this seat before finding me. And I think they just had different visions of how to do politics. You know, they came to my staff having worked on local political campaigns. My former campaign manager had been a canvassing director for a local mayoral campaign. Uh, other people on my team had worked for local campaigns to elect supervisors to the board of supervisors. And they had a very local vision of how to run. And that local vision of how to run didn't particularly encompass any of my experience on communications, press, or fundraising. And the idea that you beat the Speaker of the House the same way that you run a school board campaign is, you know, to me, it's transparently uh, not a viable strategy. And, I, and I'm, I'm grateful that the people I brought into the campaign, after I shifted teams, after winning the primary, that we built the campaign that we would need to win the seat. Uh, and it's demonstrated in all of the subsequent performance. You know, until the accusations hit our campaign, we grew very dramatically as I shifted the team from the primary staff to one that was more aligned with my vision. And it's all the more reason that I think it's regrettable that these accusations were treated as presumptively valid. And I think it's particularly regrettable to see the, what it unleashed here in San Francisco with the city's organized community of progressive organizations effectively being silenced in the context of this very important race for Congress, which a great deal turns. When you say that you, uh, more, you brought in people who are more aligned with your vision, uh, it sounds like they were talking about running a more traditional campaign sort of based on you know, outreach, that, that sort of thing. And you, was your vision more based on uh, building a national media profile? Like what, what exactly are we talking about in terms of a strategic difference? Think of it as sequencing. You have to do both parts. So you need a field operation and you need to engage the public. My former staff was very adamant that every penny that I'd raised get invested into field. And the fact of the matter is we needed support and I've gotten support since on press and communications. And my point at the time, and it's borne itself out, is that when we reach out to the press, People attracted to my voice volunteer with the campaigns. They expand the reach of the field program. It's the difference between, you know, their, their vision was for me to raise money and employ hundreds of people making phone calls. And that's a very staff-centered, professionalized vision. What I am doing, in fact, is recruiting thousands of people to phone bank for us as volunteers. And the idea of a volunteer-led and driven campaign was not something that they seemed to understand. I mean, I think in the context of local politics, maybe those races are much more staff-centered. But I'm not a political careerist. I'm an advocate, and I've been a grassroots organizer, and I was building my campaign 
the way I've done everything else I've done. You know, when we've, when we've won local policies around the country, it isn't because I hired a bunch of professionals to elbow out the volunteers who wanted to participate. And that's what was happening. And, you know, I was very adamant that our campaign be not just include volunteers, but that anywhere we had a volunteer with a set of skills, that we put that person in the mix and let them participate. And the number of volunteers who came to me saying, you know, after I'd have conversations with them and they'd be lined up and ready to go, and their response would be, I can't get your staff to return my phone calls, or I can't get your staff to return my emails, or your staff won't let me do this or that. And, and that, that's a very sharp difference between, for instance, the kind of campaign that centers the supporters versus the kind of campaign that centers the employees. And I think my, my former staff presented their concerns to the press as if they were aggrieved workers with a concern about a bad boss. And at the end of the day, what was really happening here was that there were people seeking political careers who were censoring themselves, frankly, as they've continued to do even after leaving my campaign, uh, in ways that displaced the people who actually are the campaign. I'm the candidate. I'm not the campaign. The campaign are the people who take times out of their day to come into our office and pound the pavement and pick up the phone. That, that's the campaign. And those are the people who I'm accountable to. Those are the people who are who politically our movement is not just accountable to, but that is our movement. When we talk about you know, running campaigns to represent a movement beyond me, it's not just me, it's us with a capital U. That's the volunteers. And I was very adamant, I remain very adamant, that they have not just opportunities, but that they're at the center of the campaign. They're the people who I'm running to represent. And, uh, and they're the people who ultimately I was defending and ensuring that my campaign welcomed them instead of excluding them. Uh, Shahid, where's, where's the line? Like, I think everybody can agree that, you know, sort of a genuine sexual harassment or even, you know, Amy Klobuchar throwing staplers at somebody, like that's a newsworthy thing. It's, I think nobody would quibble with going to the press about something like that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's the argument that if you're gonna hire somebody to work for a campaign, you have to have some kind of expectation that things are gonna stay in house or else you just really can't run for office anymore. Uh, so what's acceptable to go to the media about uh, and what, what, what's the definition um, of abuse uh, that, that would fit in, in this situation? That's a thoughtful question. I mean, if I did you know, yell at people or throw things, I think that would certainly be newsworthy, but none of that happened here. Uh, you know, you had people who consistently felt like I raised concerns that they were less interested in, and I gave them feedback that sometimes wasn't entirely positive. Uh, and I don't think that's a news story. I, I would say that more important to some extent than what justifies coming forward is what justifies press outlets correcting the record. And this is one of the places where I've been most disappointed. You know, a number of local press outlets, the San Francisco Chronicle, 48 Hills, the Bay Area Reporter, Mission Local, they ran stories without vetting any of the facts. Some of their stories were internally inconsistent. And the fact that these outlets, when confronted with documentary evidence proving that sources they had quoted on the record were promoting a narrative that diverged from the facts, none of them wrote new stories. Some of the editors said, we don't think this is relevant. And I think it's amazing when multiple people come forward to say that they were recruited by my former staff to participate in what one of those people described as a smear campaign. And then they come forward with the evidence of the communications documenting it. 
and the local press says, no, we already wrote our stories, we're not going to look at this anymore. That to me seems like not just a failure, it is at least a failure of press ethics. And it, it does certainly alarm me about the state of the local political landscape. Beyond that though, as a person of color who has been falsely accused by a white woman of a sexual impropriety, it attains dimensions worse merely than unethical journalism. And, and that for me has been particularly challenging to grapple with. Uh, and, and I think it, it frankly is a thing that San Francisco has not even begun yet to grapple with, but I think it's a disturbing reflection of recent events um, that I certainly hope we can all learn from. And can you explain um, that um, the documentary evidence that contradicts um, part of the press narrative? Sure. One of my former colleagues, uh, in fact, several of my former colleagues, had promoted a rumor before these press reports that I had engaged in what they described as a pattern of inappropriate behavior with my volunteers. And they wrote a resolution for DSA, which they then strategically leaked to The Intercept and it printed it. It, it, it published this resolution by Democratic Socialists of America, which repudiated the text of that resolution, even as the organization proceeded to rescind its endorsement of our campaign. But as my colleagues, my former colleagues were promoting this rumor, uh, at least two of them had reached out to one of my volunteers. And in this text exchange, they're talking about how uh, how they wanted this volunteer to confirm in public that I had done something inappropriate. And in her responses, in the texts, her responses include messages like, this is sick. I'm not going to participate in your smear campaign. And this is a white woman ultimately coming to save me from the machinations, in this case, of a white man in one case that was reaching out to her. When you have a white man trying to suggest to a white woman that she claimed falsely that a brown man did something inappropriate, we have words for that too. And those are words that, you know, frankly, I wish didn't fit the facts. You know, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't run for office so that I could uh, present myself uh, publicly as a target of you know, very unfortunate longstanding dynamics in our society. But that's the hill that I've been put on and I'm just observing where I'm standing. Uh, you know, those text messages were very revealing. They showed that there was a coordinated plan to promote something other than the truth. And under a traditional vision of press ethics, you know, any professional journalist I've spoken to who, who would publish a story quoting sources, if you then get evidence that your sources weren't telling the truth, you write a correction at least, if not a new story. Uh, you know, The Intercept thankfully went back to substantially revise the story that it originally published, but it didn't issue a correction. The only people who read the actual facts that didn't make it into the first article were people who went back to it three weeks after it was published. And that also seems like a frankly profound failure of, of a press outlet that I frankly have some respect for and, and wish had done a better job here. I think I, it's, it's that the case you're referring to, I believe, is one where um, people, to, to be charitable, it could have been misunderstood. Um, it was someone who wanted her number um, given out to someone to be um, introduced to volunteer with that person. And the way it was presented was as if you were inappropriately um, demanding her number from someone um, for other reasons. So um, in these text messages, you see a back and forth. And as you said, this volunteer kind of repeatedly denies that that's what was happening. Um, it could have been a misunderstanding, right, with 
a very persistent. Um, uh, no, I no. don't think so. Well, I'll just I'll sketch out the scenario that preceded it. Uh, and I know this to be true now because the volunteer who is the subject of these rumors came forward to our campaign to say, I've been feeling disgusted since these stories ran. And she had some very uh, insightful, or let's just say colorful terms about my former staff. So we're at an event. One of my donors and volunteers, who's very active in putting up signs around the city, he was very active in doing banner drops for Bernie. And he'd come up with some clever ways to use magnets <clears throat> to hang banners in public spaces. And another donor and volunteer who was there in the same space, a young woman, was interested in joining him to do a banner drop. So I say to my former finance director, can you make sure that she gets connected to him? And I ended up having to ask her several times because she refused to have the conversation. And then the gossip that she started peddling was that I was trying to hook up sexually one volunteer with another so that I could look like the man, I suppose, was the, the rumor. And this is, you know, that wasn't true that night. It wasn't true after. At no point was that true. And the idea that that could have been a well-intentioned misconstruction just flies in the face of the facts. Uh, I, it, and it was, it's pretty clear to me that there's no, and it's clear to her, the person named in this incident, that this was not um, a example of a good faith confusion. You know, this was, this was, uh, much sharper and more intentional than that. Not to push back uh, that much, but isn't it kind of too late to correct the record once one of these stories comes out? I mean, the, in the internet age, basically what happens is people hear there's a thing that involves this person and it lives forever on the internet. It can't be, it can't be erased. Uh, the first version of whatever is printed is still always going to be there. Uh, so what do politicians do in the internet age? Uh, I mean, in the past, it wasn't like that. You, a story could come out for a day and then you would have a new version and that's what people would talk about. It would be, and, and memory would do the job, right? But now people just can find their own version of reality uh, perpetually. Um, what, what problems does that pose for politicians? You're certainly right to correct, to, to observe the dynamic in terms of how politicians should respond. I'll be honest with you, I don't frankly know. All, all I tried to do was keep my elbows in and trust the facts to emerge and trust that the press would get it right the next time. And, and I'm grateful to you all for getting it right. It has taken over a month for that to happen. And the failures of the local press, frankly, are astounding to me. It just amazes me that these stories could go uncorrected for so long, even after so many facts would finally bring themselves to light. Uh, and I don't frankly understand what the answer is here. I mean, I saw politically motivated accusations derail the candidacy of, of other congressional campaigns uh, around the country. Uh, as a person of color, it is particularly challenging to respond to these accusations because they're not just accusations, they're accusations that are amplified by any number of implicit biases whether around race or religion. Uh, you know, the idea that Muslim men are misogynistic was a big part of the public narrative supporting the war in Afghanistan that's now been going on for 20 years. And, and I'm not gonna deny that it's a real issue in Muslim countries. I will claim very accurately that that's not an issue with me. 
uh, I'm very eager to learn from any situation. It's why when I was accused, I didn't punch back at anybody. You know, my response to that was to sincerely reflect and ask the people who I work with now, the people who I've worked with in the past, you know, before this campaign to give me feedback I could learn from. And I've learned things, you know, including that my feedback can be sharp sometimes, but nobody in my experience, either before or since, ever experienced that in a gendered way. Uh, but it's useful to understand how it could be perceived that way. And, and it's given me an opportunity to grow as a leader and a manager, and I'm going to continue doing that. But, you know, to your point about the sort of inability to put the cat back in the bag, maybe to try to, you know, use a metaphor here, like the, the story is out and it was false before, still false. I'm, I'm eager for accurate reporting to correct the narrative. And at the end of the day, I think this is a, you're, you're observing a real problem in our society. How can we have meaningful, nuanced conversations that are grounded in fact about these very charged questions and issues around identity and, and people's treatment? And, and the one thing I'd say here is that while we're having that conversation, there's another set of conversations that unfortunately get displaced. And when we want to talk about whether it's you know, misogyny or the unfortunate way in which race skews social decision-making, I have a hard time not looking at federal policy and all of the ways in which you know, women are undermined by corporate rule, all of the ways in which survivors are undermined by the inability of our federal policy apparatus to show up for working people, and the way that communities of color are continued uh, to be subjected to these totally unacceptable, long-standing uh, patterns in our society. And, and those are the issues that I'm ultimately aiming to, to run to try to fix. And as we're talking about issues around inclusion in people's experiences, I think it's important both that we ground those reports and observations and, and restorative processes, hopefully, in fact, as opposed to accusation, and also that we keep our eye on the ball of politics, which is to say policy beyond the personality. Uh, I understand that personalities matter, uh, I'm not running for office, frankly, um, because I want people to like me. I'm running for office because I want to get the kids out of the cages that Nancy Pelosi funded. And I want to make sure that the next population that's going to get bombed in a war that she would cheerlead for, that they don't have to deal with that. And I do think of, of those as important issues that we should not lose sight of at the same time. And in the local clubs here in San Francisco did entirely lose sight of those issues, you know, sort of the, the, presumption to presume accusation is legitimate, to ignore evidence, to ignore witnesses, to ignore the voices of women who emerged to defend me, including women of color who were just silenced and overlooked, and then to race to judgments that unfortunately reinforce established institutional power, to me reflected such a failing, not just of the truth or of process, but even the underlying commitments of some of these communities. And that's really where my disappointment grows deepest. It's, I mean, so people have said that you would yell and berate. Um, I think that, I guess, I don't know if that means. Was it really yelling? I, 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 or what are they actually alleging? I'm sorry to interrupt. Right, no, it's, it's not clear to me. They've said, they've used the word berate. And, you know, I understand that has connotations of saying something over and over again, which unfortunately had to happen. Right. <laughs> did have many conversations about the same thing. You know, I told the story about my finance director and those two volunteers. I think we had to talk half a dozen times that night just to get her to get the phone number from one of them to the other. And that's before she went off, you know, telling this story about some way in which it was supposedly inappropriate, which it wasn't. 
So, I mean, I guess, so you're saying you don't, you never yelled. And there's also the question of whether or not people are allowed to yell without an endorsement being rescinded. I mean, I'm probably going to be called like, shut up boomer or something. I'm not a boomer, <laughs> by the way. But I do think that like, I don't know, there are lots of things that, that are, like Matt was saying, like, okay, throwing staplers is not okay and right. is absolutely worthy of bringing to the DSA. I don't know if yelling is, um, quite frankly. Uh, I think it depends on if you're yelling like slurs. Um, of course. Of course, and, and major well, insults, but. Well, could, 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 I mean, I mean is, is some of this a reexamination of how people perceive bosses should be in the work in the workplace. Like I think Katie, I'm sorry to interrupt your question. No, 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 but no. I, I think, you know, you're talking about people saying, okay, boomer you know, from my generation, right. The, the understanding probably was that it was normal to have a, a tough boss. Like, like bosses can be really, really difficult. And that was a part of the, of a normal person's life experience to enter the workplace and have to learn how to grapple with being given orders and all those things. These are, these are difficult, you know, but uh, there's a, a new idea that I think that's coming up that, um, you know, maybe there should be a, a different relationship between bosses and employees or professors and students. Um, is it a generational thing? I mean, I, I guess that's, that's the question. Are, are people rethinking what, what is proper in the workplace? I think it's certainly a thoughtful question, and I think there's a generational component. There's also, I would describe, an ideological component. So on the generational piece, you know, it's been suggested to me that some folks might have a challenge just by virtue of their own life experience in distinguishing conflict from abuse. And we did certainly have conflict on the there's team. That's a good Sarah, the there's a Sarah, Shul Sarah Shulman book, Conflict is Not Abuse. Okay, I haven't read it, but I think it's, it's very much on point here. We, we had conflict legitimately. That's not abuse. There's a difference there. And again, if anybody internalized that from their experience with me, I am very, very profoundly sorry for that. That's not something I ever meant for anybody to experience. And it's not something anybody to my knowledge has ever experienced with me either before or since. Um, to the point about the like, you know, changing expectations one way. And as a socialist, I do frankly aim to demonstrate a different relationship between bosses and employees. And frankly, to try to do what I can to promote that in policy. The difference though, I think my colleagues had, uh, my former colleagues had presumed um, that because they were uh, workers on a socialist campaign that they you know, could control everything. I, I found myself debating my message with people who I'd hired to effectuate the campaign. And you know, they've written things like, like the idea that I don't know what my message is. I know what my message is. <laughs> right, it's your message. Right. right. And I think my supporters know what my message is. It's pretty clear to me that my former staff struggled to get it. Uh, and, you know, that's not a criticism. It's just an observation. Uh, but, but in the ideological context, we do aim to promote a flatter, more collegial vision of workplace relationships. And at the same time, I still have to run the campaign, you know, and I, I need to make sure that, that my staff is executing direction. I need to make sure that they're, you know, rowing in the same direction. And especially with having hired, a team that was led by women, young women generally, who hadn't necessarily played the roles before that they were playing on our campaign. There were a lot of opportunities for guidance and direction. Uh, and, and I get the sense that those were ones to which they weren't as receptive as maybe I would have liked. 
I do want to touch on one piece just to be rigorous here. There was a question as to whether I ever yelled. There, the one time I can remember, and I'm not a yeller, just to be clear, the one time I can remember having raised my voice was a meeting shortly after I won the primary when I asked for a strategy meeting and my former staff basically organized an intervention. You know, they disregarded my agenda. They basically organized all of my closest supporters to uh, embrace the, the staff's recommendations. And that's not frankly what I'd asked for. The whole point of the meeting was to expose the various things we could be playing for, like supporting the movement, like shifting federal policy. My former colleagues wrote publicly that they took away from that conversation the idea that I didn't want to win, which is frankly ridiculous. Uh, and you know, I don't know what to say about that other than to observe the apparent inexperience of some people who managed to internalize very different narratives from the same events that I did. Uh, but again, I'm just mostly grateful that I have a new team and that I have teammates on my staff now who are aligned, who see the vision that we're promoting, who understand my message and support it. And, and so, that is something I could unfortunately say about the folks I've worked with before. Something that I've noticed is um, a, there's a lot of discussion, like you said, of whether you wanted to win, of how you planned your, your campaign. Um, of uh, whether it was a vanity campaign. And I guess that's kind of shocked me because those could be true. Like you could have been running a vanity campaign. I'm not saying you are. And I think that even, but that's a scary precedent because it's like only people who are pulling really well from the get-go should be running. But right. even if you, and also of course, let's say you were polling terribly, but you could still shape the dialogue Shifty, Matt loves this word, over in a window. But I mean, that's a po political discussion. That's not an abuse discussion or to work toxicity discussion. And that was, to me, the, the Intercept article when they mentioned how that someone mentioned how much you made and then people were talking about a vanity project and you didn't want to win. That suggested to me that this wasn't really about abuse. Or if it was, it was about a lot of other things. But to me, that was kind of an inappropriate inclusion. Like, why does that stuff matter? It seemed to me like people were trying to exonerate themselves of being accused of, of destroying a campaign, a viable campaign. That's my theory, my totally, which Matt doesn't have. I mean, that's just conjecture. I'm not reporting this. Um, but it does seem to fit the facts. I mean, I'll say that, that there were a host of allegations that had no relationship to the toxicity claim or the harassment claim that found their way into their writing. And it, it did seem to me to reflect an agenda uh, and an entirely explicable agenda, right? I mean, I think if you're a young person trying to build a political career in a city aligned with a powerful incumbent, I think there's probably, I'm sure they felt some degree of pressure to try to rehabilitate themselves, maybe by, you know, burning down my barn. And uh, I'm not going to, uh, legitimate that aim, but I can understand it. I can see why it would emerge. I do think it's interesting that the press reporting on their claims didn't think to consider that or that the local organizations that raced to judgment and were told by multiple people that these allegations are at the very best stretching the truth, that the local organizations didn't pay any heed to the facts. I think all of those things are really, again, just very disappointing. I mean, I'm, I am confronting the most powerful corporate politician on the planet. I'm doing it to try to defend the future. And because of these accusations, I'm more or less walking into that battle, not alone. I mean, I have plenty of supporters. I have tens of thousands of supporters, but I'm doing it without Progressive Democrats of America. I'm doing it without the Tenants Union. I'm doing it without DSA. 
I'm doing it without the self-described progressive clubs in this city because they neutralized themselves by responding to these accusations as if they were true because, you know, they were willing to put to, to privilege accusation over fact and to privilege guilt over innocence and to privilege presumption over process. And, you know, as a person of color at the bottom of that heap, I'm just out here advocating for my community in the future as, as well as I can. And, and I understand that some people might have thought at different points that I couldn't win. Just to be clear, when I, I started running for the seat in 2018, and to whatever extent I couldn't win, it was much more clear then. I mean, as we've proceeded, I frankly have blown away all of my expectations. Uh, you know, we've, we, we, there's no campaign ever in the last generation for this seat that's come even within a mile of the amount of support we've received. And if some young people who I hired onto my campaign think I can't do it, uh, I think that also reflects their inexperience because they haven't been here for the preceding 30. I don't know if I can or not, but I'm closer than anyone has gotten before. And I have every intention of doing it. And I'm gl glad to work with people now who are committed to doing it instead of, you know, sort of having the sort of like queasy stomach and, 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 and nervousness of people who are, uh, who perceive the legitimacy of a product of a project only in its tactical victory. Another way I just reflect on this, we've already been winning. There are half a dozen federal policies that would not have passed the House if I was not mounting this campaign. The Protecting Right to Organize Act, Pelosi's after the fact support for congressional war powers, her decision to reconvene Congress to save the post office, moving the Justice and Policing Act, which she named after George Floyd, even the vote would expand police budgets and surveillance. Each of those measures she would not have embraced if we didn't create heat on the left. And that also, you know, the inability to recognize that very profound influence in some respects beyond capturing the seat. I mean, capturing the seats, one vote in Congress, because we're forcing the speaker to show up to her own left, we're shifting federal policy. And I don't know, frankly, another campaign in the country that can claim that. And, you know, to anybody who thinks that what I'm running is a vanity project, I would just suggest that they think about any of those issues. And there are real people impacted by those issues. And I think they might feel very differently. Yeah, yeah I should. I said over 10 window, but I meant policy also. So, sorry, Matt. No, it's OK. Uh, yeah. It it isn't running a campaign and, and getting a message out, even if you ultimately don't win the seat. Um, isn't it a successful form of politics anyway? I mean, you, I mean, I think about people like Dennis Kucinich, and I'm not comparing you to him, but uh, the just being able to get the message out uh, and familiarizing people with with the contours of certain issues. Uh, you know, paves the way for other things in the future. And that's exactly what uh, your donors are paying for, isn't it? Uh, when, when, you're, when you're running for office, like they want you to agitate for something. Uh, and it's, it's important that you do that, whether you win or not. Uh, and right, isn't, I mean, isn't, isn't the campaign actually part of, part of what they're paying for? Absolutely. I, I would describe it in these terms. You know, we have a failure of public discourse because our media institutions and our elected leaders turn them, they just ignore so many issues in our society, like a mounting eviction wave, like the longstanding crisis in public health preceding the pandemic, uh, like any number of crises in his inclusion. Think about the racism that pervades policing and how long that was tolerated before more recently becoming an object of widespread conversation. It's not like those issues are new. And I've been raising all of those issues. And I do think of that as, as a victory. You know, one of the particular things I've uh, made the point of reminding people 
in the wake of the latest resurgence of the movement for black lives is the role of the central intelligence agency in promoting paramilitarized policing and mass incarceration. Many people don't realize that. Uh, and, and it's documented history. And one of my roles as a candidate for public office is to educate the public and to do the work that our educational institutions and our media institutions fail so dramatically to do. And I think that's why our campaign, frankly, has attracted so much support because people around the country recognize my willingness and I dare say ability to forcefully speak the truth, and especially in an age when we're all told so many lies. Uh, and, and that is a crucial, not only value in itself of the campaign, but also a really compelling strategy because that's how we've been able to recruit thousands of people to make phone calls for us. You know, when I think about the tactics and strategies that I differed with my primary campaign about, you suggested, Matt, in your question, that part of my job is to agitate for these values. And that's absolutely right. The way we built this campaign before I hired the professional staff was quite simply me showing up at everything in the city. If there was a discussion or a march or a rally or a panel on climate justice or policing or economic justice for the last three years, I've been there with a bunch of people until connecting with people. And that idea of being present in street activism, the idea of being showing up for communities, that was something that my former staff, frankly, just didn't get because that's not the kinds of campaigns that they've run. You know, I, I got guidance from people, including in that meeting that I suggested. You know, there are parts of the city, uh, minority enclaves, that I've been suggested by professional campaign staff not to waste my time in because there aren't votes there, so they say. And I'm pretty sure that the reason there aren't votes there is because people don't show up in those communities and they don't advocate for those communities' needs. And that's why I show up there. And it's why I advocate for those communities' needs. And it's a very different vision of campaigning that treats the past like an immutable fixture and, you know, tries tactically to whittle away at the edges of consensus. I'm, I'm running a grassroots campaign. I'm taking the challenge for the seat to the people of San Francisco. And I'm, I'm doing it in ways that, traditional candidates haven't had the background or the ability to do. And it's one reason, again, that I'm so uh, excited that our campaign has gained so much ground in the months since we transitioned the staff. It's another reason why I'm disappointed that our campaigns hit the headwinds that we have since my former staff came forward with these accusations. And it's one reason I'm so excited to get on the other side of this, uh, hopefully as the facts become more widely understood uh, and I can go back to fighting for my city's values and, and have the opportunity to fight for them in Washington. Could, could I ask one question? You're, you're in a very um, unusual place. Like you, you, you uh, represent a brand of a very progressive, openly left politics, but you're also a civil rights lawyer. Uh, and I hate this term cancel culture, but when, you, when people talk about that, one of the responses that you often hear is, oh, it's not canceling, it's just accountability. But in instances like these, uh, what, what should be the process, right? Because I think one of the problems is um, you have all these political institutions like the DSA that are making judgments, but there isn't a process in the internet age that we've delineated yet for how to deal with all of these things, right? Uh, so people are immediately, they're, they're, they're making the, the uh, instantaneous judgment call to just back off and, and renounce uh, whoever it is for whatever reason. What should be the process? Like, is, have you thought about what, what might That's be a way out of this? And at least one thing that could have happened differently is if the local clubs 
permitted witnesses and evidence. One of them did. The San Francisco Burning Crats is the only one of the local political organizations that actually undertook a process to explore the facts. And the membership voted to not rescind their endorsement. They stuck by me. And it's interesting, the club's leadership presumed to overrule the membership and downgraded its endorsement to a recommendation anyway. But just to give credit to the club's membership for engaging process and thinking critically that they welcomed the voices that DSA affirmatively excluded, that the tenants union didn't even consider like thinking to invite or hear from. And these include women of color locally who also had experiences, volunteers of mine who had experiences with my former staff. People who've seen story shift, people who've seen the challenges between me and my former staff impact them themselves uh, and their voices weren't brought forward, right? When you have witnesses who've been impacted by the same people bringing the accusations toward me in ways that indicate a pattern, I would think that anyone interested in the truth might open their ears or at least allow a process. And that's what I want to get back to. The ultimate answer to your question that I think is process in the law we have a principle about due process. And that's really, really important because without due process, you can't have any faith that a set of accusations are grounded in any truth. And you know, I don't know if the legal standard of due process is the one that political clubs need to necessarily meet, but they need to have some process. You know, the process can't just be, oh, you have relevant information, but you're not part of our club. We're not interested in hearing from you. I mean, that's foolish, frankly. And it does a disservice to the facts and the interests that we ultimately come together around. I guess that's the point I'd want to make. And it, it doesn't do socialism any favors for DSA to say to everybody with an inkling of, of experience or relevant insight that we're not going to hear from you. We're just going to you know, proceed as if this was true when it's not. Um, and I'd say there are other communities that people have claimed to stand for that aren't served either by racist to judgment. Um, maybe the, the last thing I'd say here is that when we talk about um, movements that emerge around holding people accountable, I'm very eager for those movements to punch up and not down. And what happened to me was an example of movements being co-opted to punch down. Uh, I'm, I don't have any institutional authority. I own nothing in the world. I am an immigrant aspirant to uh, the opportunity to represent my city. And the person I'm challenging is the third wealthiest member of Congress. And she's at the top of one of the national political parties. She is literally the embodiment of institutional and personal power. And you know the local organizations that uh, describe themselves as progressive weren't punching up, they were punching down. And again, as a person of color, on the receiving end of those punches, if they were deserved, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd take them, and I'd, but, but they're not. And, and I think that's precisely why I just hope that people could, again, consider process before leaping to conclusions. The, the, the propensity to leap to conclusions and to believe accusations without thinking of them critically, that's led to really disturbing, horrifying things in the past. You know, another of the things I'm grateful for is that I'm still standing here. You know, there, there, there are lots of people of color who've been falsely accused of things who, who didn't have that opportunity at the end of the process. And I'm glad that the only thing that got uh, you know, really particularly targeted here was my campaign instead of my person, though my reputation certainly has also taken a beating. Uh, and, and that's disappointing to me, but I, all I can do is hope that people would evaluate me on the basis of my character and my actions uh, instead of the claims by people with an interest in depicting a different story. Can you talk about how um, 
uh, the allegation that you um, that your campaign manager had to manage your sex life. That's just to me the most hurtful part of the accusations. But, you know, one thing I'd noticed that it doesn't relate to the supposed like accusations themselves, right? Like this was just a gratuitous swipe. And most campaign managers for most candidates manage the calendar. And I worked seven days a week and I worked six nights a week. And I frankly wouldn't, I didn't know when I had off. And, and I have a non-traditional relationship structure, which my former campaign manager outed, which also seems, you know, ethically uh, curious. Yeah. Uh, but the, you know, the accusation that, that, that she claims to have, have known any intimate details about my sex life, I certainly never shared them with her. Uh, the only knowledge she would have known about my sex life is who I might have gone to dinner with on my rare night off work. Uh, you know, one person in my life reached out to, to my former campaign manager to see what would be a good weekend to go on a camping trip last year. It had been like two years since I'd had <clears throat> like a meaningful weekend off. And so she wanted to take me camping. And there was a question about that, how that then gets conflated with arranging my, my sex life or why that justifies writing about it publicly I can't explain that, you know, it is disturbing. Um, I could come up with other adjectives, but I don't think, uh, you know, I don't know so, if they're helpful. I mean, in, in the, the medium post, she mentions that she had to uh, manage your sex life. And she says that she had to schedule stuff with your girlfriends and two at two at once or something. And I don't mean to get too personal, but like you're polyamorous. And it seemed like very gratuitous. Why did she need to men even if she was going to make that claim? And to be fair, if you had been like, hey, can you schedule me for sex on that night? That would have been relevant because it would have been a weird boundaries issue. Of but course. you didn't do that. Right. So like mm -hmm. just to be fair to the potential relevance of that. But um, it, that it just seems irrelevant and kind of like, again, kind of like how much you're making is irrelevant or two at the same time. Again, it's like, OK, you're. I don't know if that's an excuse to out someone as polyamorous, which is kind of pr problematic on many levels. Um, but I it thought is. that was curious. That really stood out for me. Like, what is the relevance of saying two at the same time? This thing could have been about one girlfriend or 10. It doesn't matter as long, you know what I mean? Like, I just thought I was like, really? Oh. Well, among the things that's particularly ironic to me is, is that the, the, that reflection was made by somebody who's being considered for the leadership of an LGBTQ organization. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I think the history of people being outed uh, inadvertently has a long and sad history. It certainly doesn't have any relevance to the, ac the other accusations that they made towards me. It does seem to me to reveal uh, perhaps a set of interests. I, I am ethically non-monogamous uh, and the community of my partners um, are also, they're very supportive of me. And, and frankly, they feel very aggrieved as well because I don't think there's any uh, reason to drag them into this. Uh, right. That seemed pretty unethical to me. And um, just to clarify for people, like that means, that means like you're not cheap. There's no deceit. I just want to make sure everyone watching this knows. Yeah, so, my yeah, partners all know each other. Like we're, we're, right. we have a community and, yeah. and that's my family. Right. Uh, and, and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not going to be ashamed of it. It's not something I'd chosen to be public about. Right. And I think the idea that people I had employed chose to expose that 
I is, think maybe the idea is that they're trying to hint at, sorry, some kind of misogyny or sexism that goes along with cheating. Well, right, and that shoe doesn't fit here. Right. You know? I, I would say it also plays on the racial trope of Muslim men, right? I mean, there's the, the emergence of implicit bias to me seems really hard to ignore. You know, I don't think these press stories get printed in the first place. If I'm not a brown Muslim immigrant, I'm, I'm quite certain the stories at least get corrected when the evidence emerges. And the fact that they didn't correct it, you could chalk that up to a failure of press ethics, except that doesn't, that doesn't actually explain the result, right? The result of it was, you know, an immigrant being judged publicly for things I didn't do. Um, I think the, the refusal to, for the local clubs to heed any of the many voices that emerged, including women of color, who caught my former staff telling different stories that they wouldn't listen to those voices reflects a very unfortunate replication of a longstanding pattern. And again, this reinforcement of the incumbent's policy paradigm, which is, you know, frankly, uh, pervaded by any number of longstanding established institutional biases. You know, I've, I've just seen the role of tacit bias here in a really disturbing way, you know, and I'm, I'm not running on, I'm not, a, I'm not running on being an immigrant. I'm not running on race. I just happened to run headlong into a buzzsaw that was enabled by the fact that I am an immigrant of color uh, and, and a Muslim at that. And, you know, again, I would just go back to, I think about the, the iconic speech given by Martin Luther King and the opportunity to be, for people to be judged on the content of their character uh, and not on the basis of, again, false accusation, especially false accusation where, as you're observing, it, it's gratuitous. And, and I do think gratuitous accusation does invite consideration as to its accuracy or the interests that might lie behind it. And that's a consideration that neither the local press nor the local clubs seem to have any patience for. Is there a problem with um, politics on the left with, there seems to be a pattern of these kinds of incidents happening, right? There, there was a similar incident with former Sanders staffers who came forward and made a, an accusation of workplace toxicity. Uh, there, there was the thing we talked about a couple of, a week ago with uh, Markey, where there's an accusation about creating an online community that was toxic. Is, is this be, are these incidents happening because uh, sort of corporate media is report more eager to report it about these kinds of candidates, or is it because the audiences um, for uh, are more receptive to those kinds of stories on the left. I mean, I'm just curious what, why, why it seems to only be happening with like the most progressive kinds of candidates. Right. I think that if we compare the tendency of the press versus the interest of the audience, I think of that as almost like a chicken and egg problem. I think the interest of the audience probably drives the interests of the press. And if we just were to contrast the interest on the left versus the interest on the right, <clears throat> you know, our asshole criminal president has done vastly worse things, right? And, and they're fairly apparent, if only because there's a pattern of accusation that stretches across multiple people in years. And, you know, hasn't paid a political price or any price for it. And yeah, I think his followers don't care. Well, that's my point, is yeah. that on the right, the, 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 the audience doesn't in fact care. And right. the audience that cares is on the left. And the idea that, I think there's also an, an, an element here of the role that identity politics has come to play in the left as an alternative to a, uh, you know, understanding of how power dynamics and resources have been distributed and how that 
narrative has unfolded over time. I think the, the role of identity politics has been very unfortunate here, both in distracting people as individuals and entire communities from what is at stake, and also by creating, you know, priming the pump for this kind of accusation pattern. And, and at the end of the day, I think that the, as much as our various interests driven by our identities and our, and our historical marginalizations can bring us together, they also can divide us. And I think that it's important for us to stand together as people and to be committed as I am an intersectional feminist to eradicating marginalization wherever it emerges. And I saw demonstrating in the attack on me, you know, a, a people claiming to be some kind of feminist, but it certainly wasn't intersectional. And the understanding of intersectionality is really critical, I think, for people to avoid letting historical marginalization become a vector for, for the replication of dynamics that we're all trying to transcend. Um, and I think that takes some degree of experience, maybe insight. I think plenty of young people demonstrate it, you know, the folks I worked with, unfortunately, did not. Um, but I think that these are challenges and opportunities for us as a movement, if we mean to embody the principles that we stand for. I mean, yeah, isn't that a political weakness a little bit, right? If like, if you're, if you're Donald Trump, you don't have to worry about all sorts of things because there's a presumption that only certain things are gonna be in bounds, whereas, uh, or that, that only certain things are gonna matter to your, to your followers. Uh, whereas uh, candidates on the left, um, it seems like there's a whole universe of things that they have to be constantly thinking about uh, in addition to trying to promote a larger message. You're absolutely right about that. It does place campaigns on the left at a profound disadvantage. Um, I don't know if there's anything I could add beyond that. It, it is a real challenge for our movement and I do hope that participants in it can learn from this saga if only to suspend the inclination towards judgment next time to give chance give a chance for the facts to emerge and to grapple with facts instead of accusations. And I, I, I hope that what happened in other races and what's happened in ours can be a teaching moment and a learning opportunity for, for a movement that needs to figure this stuff out because I, I fear that I won't be the last candidate uh, falsely accused. And, and I do think that we're going to need to make sure that as a movement, we're willing to put our principles first. Uh, and even when that includes, I would put it this way, you know, among the things that progressives are committed to, and we're demonstrating this in the streets every day, is racial justice, right? And, and I recognize how it plays out in policing. We should see how it plays out in the press. And we should be vigilant for the kinds of patterns that we challenge in our activism to emerge under our feet. And, and that takes a commitment. And that's what I'm eager to see the movement do, is recommit to principles and to facts and, and to our own principles. I think if we commit to our principles, they shall set us free. The truth certainly shall. Uh, and I think that's where, where I'm eager to invite people's attention. Well, anyway, this has been really interesting. Any final last words? Um, oh, no, you're like a constitutional lawyer, so that's going to be like until tomorrow morning. <laughs> I'll keep it short. I'll just yeah. thank you. For yeah, it. I was going to say, was, was that part of the complaint, like just lawyering? Yeah. Right? Like, like <laughs> that's, I'm sorry. That, that, yeah. that, I'm, I'm grateful for the chance to, to join you all the today. And I'm especially grateful for your willingness to just report the facts. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to our campaign. I think it means a lot to this political moment to see journalists showing up for press efforts. When is the, um, is the vote? So November 3rd is election day. So we're looking forward to removing Pelosi on the same day that we removed Trump from the White House. 
ballots arrive on October, in the beginning of October. So we have basically a get out the vote month over the course of October. I'm looking forward to that going really well. I'm looking forward to joining you after I win the election and talking about uh, expanding the squad in Washington next year. Awesome. Excellent. Sounds good. All right. We'll see you then after, uh, right. after victory. So that was great. I learned, I learned a lot this week. Yeah, me too. Like what though? I can't remember, but no, no, I'm sorry. You know, it, it, it was good. I think he, you learned so much. It almost overwhelmed your brain. Yeah. These are different. These are really very, very difficult issues. And I, I, we're living, I think, through this phase of uh, politics, the political and media history, where there's there isn't a process for this kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's understood on all sides. Politicians really don't know how to behave. Um, the, the reporters don't really know how to handle it exactly. Uh, and, you know, things that used to be maybe off the record conversations between aides and reporters that kind of became folded into larger stories in some other way in the past are now becoming like released in granular detail uh, on social media. It's just, a, it's like a new thing. We just haven't worked out how, how to do it yet yeah exactly um i don't know yeah and as like a woman who's pretty attuned to like dynamics and you know there are times when you're like in a work situation and the men make more eye contact with each other and it's really annoying and it's infuriating but uh i still think that there's a we need to figure out how to balance that um and I'm not saying like the people, the allegations people are making are is not something as small as that. I just guess I mean like I know what there are. There are a lot of frustrating things that are not explicit. Um, but I I also feel like we there's something infantilizing about some of this narrative. I believe like totally. yeah. Um, so yeah, we just got to figure it out. And like, look, the nice thing is that this is happening so much that people who are accusing people of stuff are going to be accused. Soon, well, right. and it's, it's like, gonna all get neutralized and canceled. I mean, out. who who at this point basically everybody's gone through something like this, uh, yeah. who's in public life. And um it's I, I think though it's a particular challenge for left and progressive politicians, though, because it, I don't think it's really possible to take on a politician like Nancy Pelosi or Neil, for instance, right? Uh, these politicians who are backed by just mountains of cash right. and have virtually unlimited resources, there is just not really any realistic way that a politician can take somebody like that on and have to worry about whether right. somebody's going to be offended by you making a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Yeah. Right. You know I mean? Or in the case of, in the case of Sanders, um, you know, having having to deal with former employees who, you know, might have frustrations about strategy, uh, going to the press and turning it into, you know, something like a workplace uh, right. abuse complaint. It's just, it's just that makes the the burden on that kind of candidate doubly high. Right. It feels like to me. That was a great chat. Rate review us. If you don't, then I want to preemptively, we got to be so rated and reviewed this week. We don't want to give Mayor Pete, Mayo Pete, an, a chance to even 
beat us. So guys, rate and review, order mugs. Otherwise, thanks for tuning in and we'll uh, we'll check in with you next week. Yeah. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.